It's Thursday, December 5th, 2019. From KLCC News, this is the Northwest Passage Podcast. Eugene police don't disproportionately target minorities, according to a recent state report. Some Oregon Christmas tree growers are facing tough times. Mountain snowpack is low for this time of year. And kids will be marching to urge action on climate this week in Eugene and around the world. We discuss these stories and more in this edition of the Northwest Passage. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. everybody. Thanks for joining us for this week's Northwest Passage podcast. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm the All Things Considered host Angela Kellner. I'm reporting fellow Elizabeth Gabriel. And I'm reporter Chris Lehman. Let's start with you, Angela. Any news stories you'd like to share? Last week was Thanksgiving and we didn't record a podcast. On Friday after Thanksgiving, there was a story that came out about the high price of Christmas trees. So Oregon is the number one producer of Christmas trees here. We have the great climate for it. But um, in doing some research, uh, I found out that about 10 years ago, there was a seedling shortage. So there weren't enough little tiny trees for the tree farmers to plant. An average Christmas tree takes about seven to 10 years to reach maturity. So if you look back a decade ago when there weren't enough trees to plant, now that's coming to fruition that these Christmas tree farmers in Oregon don't have trees that are uh, market size. So um, there's also been a number of family farms that have gone out of business. Christmas tree farming is a very labor-intensive, expensive um, undertaking. So the story from last Friday was saying that Christmas trees on average go for about $78. Um, A lot of folks are kind of turning to the fake tree because they can buy it once and have it for a lifetime. So I thought that was kind of interesting that the Oregon Christmas tree farmers are so reliant on, you know, the market. There's a huge demand for these trees. A lot of them get shipped to Mexico. Um, So I thought that was kind of interesting And then I read further into it, and it turns out that we had a couple of really hot summers a few years ago, so the drought um, contributed to the Christmas trees kind of being stunted. They don't irrigate the trees. They don't water them. They're just watered by rain, and so that was kind of hard for the trees as well. And then we found out on Monday of this week that there was a van of 13 Guatemalan migrant tree farmers, Christmas tree workers, They had worked on Thanksgiving. Um, They were working at a Christmas tree farm in Corvallis. They had gone and picked up their paychecks, and they were driving home, and they were involved in a really serious crash, Mm. and three of them died, and nine of them were injured. And so that was that was really hard to hear that, you know, we want to get a beautiful Christmas tree in our home for the season and uh, workers are, you know, risking their lives both on the, you know, out in the field and then just driving home after a long day work. One other thing. So if you have sticker shock over the price of a Christmas tree when you go to the lot or the grocery store to buy one, you can get a $5 permit to go out to the National Forest and cut your own tree. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever done that. It sounds kind of hard to me, but <laughs> um, so you can go online and you can purchase the tree permit through the National Forest Service, or you can go to one of their offices and buy a permit. I believe you can buy up to five permits per family. There's a lot of rules around cutting down the tree and where you can go, um, and they do 
warn you that if you're going to head out, you know, to the forest that you are prepared for winter weather and you have emergency supplies and extra food and someone knows where you're going. So um, if you don't want to pay the price of a Christmas tree um, on a lot, you can get a permit and take your family out and cut down your own tree. It sounds very romantic. I think there is kind of a dark side to that, too. I mean, you mentioned you need to know where you're going. And we have heard of, you know, people getting lost Mm -hmm. in the woods in the winter weather. So Elizabeth, you um, were reporting this week on a report that it was a statewide report on law enforcement in Oregon. And specifically, you heard from the chief of the Eugene Police Department about this report they did on um, traffic and pedestrian stops. Right. So it's called the Statistical, Statistical Transparency of Policing Report, also known as the STOPS program. House Bill 2355 was passed in 2017 and mandated that the state better track how they're policing and stopping people. And so basically the report found that police officers in Eugene were not disproportionately stopping people of color. However, it did find that out of the entire state, Eugene had the second highest number of stops that led to a search or an arrest. And so 8% of Eugene police stops led to a search, which is higher than the state average of 4.3%. Hmm. However, despite all of this, despite those high numbers, uh, police chief Chris Skinner said that he's overall pleased with the results, and he said that the these do match the results that they did through their own citywide report. But he did state that there is more that needs to be done. But I do think good police departments try to do their own internal checks just to take the temperature of how things are going. What we don't want to do is be asleep at the wheel and then five years from now wonder how we got to a place where we're, we're creating a, a, an inequitable and unfair practice in our policing with some of our minority community. And so we want to ask the question every year. And this mechanism will be a great mechanism for us to be able to keep, keep track of that. So, Elizabeth, in the report, Eugene is pretty white. So it would be kind of surprising to me if the numbers of stops for people of color were higher because it would mean they were really profiling them, that you're really looking at the color of the driver. Um, in Eugene, it's it's not as common. I mean, there's just a lower population of people of color. Did Chief Skinner or in your reporting, did you – look into that at all in terms of how it would be different in Portland where there is a higher percentage of people of color? The report did find that people of color in Portland were targeted more compared Mm -hmm. to white people in Portland. Um, However, Chief Skinner does attribute Eugene's uh, equity training as well as uh, bias training to the reason why Eugene does not have a higher number. And like I said, uh, since they have been tracking uh, data like this since 2012, he believes that's another reason why Portland did have higher numbers than Eugene. So, Elizabeth, coming up on Friday, there's a big, the fourth um, climate strike that's happening here in Eugene and nationally and internationally um, on Friday, and you're you're getting ready to cover that strike. Tell us about it. Yeah, so... um, Students in Eugene, or youth in Eugene, are participating in the uh, worldwide climate strike. And specifically in Eugene, people are trying to get Governor Kate Brown to oppose the Jordan Cove pipeline. And essentially, they want her to speak out against it. And they're striking beginning at noon, walking to the federal courthouse, 
and then they are going to have a rally. And after that, they are marching to the Eugene Free Speech Plaza, in which there will be an art installation as well, in which people can interact with it and explain why they are in support of environmental justice. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Hey, Chris Lehman up there in Salem, tell us what you've been working on this week. Hey, Rachel and everyone else. Um, So I turn to uh, the weather this week, and uh, we're always interested in the weather, of course. But uh, at this time of year, we've start thinking about snow. We've had a, a few uh, snowstorms up in the mountains uh, so far this uh, early winter season, but not very much apparently because the the snowpack, which is something that is monitored very closely uh, by scientists and climatologists and, and uh, recreational-minded folks alike, the snowpack in Oregon is much below where it normally is at this time of year. Uh, this week, it's about 59% of usual of the usual amount of snow on the ground, and it's even lower in uh, parts of western Oregon. In fact, the um, Willamette watershed, that is the part of the state where the Willamette River drains from, which includes um, the Cascade Mountains uh, sort of west of the the crest, and that includes the Eugene area as well, the Willamette watershed only has 35% of its usual snowpack for this time of year. So uh, that might be good if you get one of those permits to head out and cut down your own Christmas tree. Um, you, You won't have to trudge through the snow, apparently, in a lot of places, especially below 5,000 feet elevation. Uh, it is concerning, though, because, of course, snowpack is what builds up and um, eventually melts and becomes the water that that comes down the mountain in the form of our streams and rivers and and refreshes the valley and and makes it a, a habitable place to live and and agriculture benefits from it as well as as animals so uh, it's it's a little bit early in the winter to sound the alarm just yet uh, you know we don't know what the weather is going to do in two or three weeks from now we could have a series of major storms um, or it could continue to be sort of dry and stagnant air. So it's it's something that's definitely worth uh, watching. It affects a lot of uh, different aspects to our life in Oregon. So the, the snowpack in Oregon, much lower than usual for this time of year for most of the state. Uh, there's a few areas in uh, south uh, southern Oregon that it's doing a little bit better, but most of the state is below normal. It looks like we might get a little rain in the next few days, but um, clearly it sounds like we need that steady kind of supply of of precipitation in order to make a difference. Right. And it's not just, you know, one question when you're talking about snowpack is, well, maybe we've been getting the precipitation, but maybe it's falling as rain instead of snow. And, you know, that may be the case for a a little bit, but just in terms of actual precipitation that's fallen in any form, uh, much of Oregon had one of the driest Novembers on record. November is typically one of the rainiest months or one of the wettest months of the year. And uh, some places, especially in the Willamette Valley, had among their uh, their second or third driest November uh, on record. So it's it's not just that it's falling as rain instead of snow. It's just the precipitation hasn't been falling uh, very much at all this this time of year. 
You're listening to the Northwest Passage. We'll be right back. Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank makes a difference in our community through sponsorship of Lane County organizations and the Warm Hearts Winter Drive, supporting homeless shelters across the Northwest. More information on how Columbia Bank team members give back to Lane County is available at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule. Member FDIC. This is the Northwest Passage Podcast from KLCC. I'm News Director Rachel McDonald with Angela Kellner, Elizabeth Gabriel, and Chris Lehman. And now it's time for us to talk about something from the news that stuck with us this week. Chris, can we start with you? Well, uh, speaking of of trees and and holidays and and that sort of thing, of course, one of the annual traditions for a lot of communities is the the Christmas tree or or holiday tree, as some places call it, um, that's often decorated with lights. Many communities celebrating the uh, turning on of the lights uh, this week, always a a fun thing. And that includes the state capitol building in Salem. They traditionally get a a very large tree in the rotunda there. You can imagine there's... uh, quite a high ceiling so you can you can get a pretty big tree in there once they get it in the doors and around some of the corners always a bit of a process but what makes that tree so special for a lot of people is the uh, model railroad display at the base of the tree. There is a, a train that runs around there with a little model village that includes some buildings in Salem, some buildings elsewhere in Oregon, and, and just some sort of made-up buildings. There's a little tunnel that the train runs through, and it's very fun, but uh, the Salem reporter uh, reported uh, this week that this could be the final year for the model train display because the the fellow that comes in and, and sets it up with some of his family uh, is getting uh, to be in the retirement uh, time of life and isn't sure that he'll be able to continue doing that, uh, you know, storing it and setting it up and maintaining it each year. So unless somebody steps up and takes that over, uh, it could be the final year for the model railroad train at the state capitol um, this December. So uh, head on up to the capitol. There's choirs that sing uh, in the rotunda during the week and and it's, it's just a really special place to visit at this time of year. Well, Chris, I know you and your son really enjoy trains. Maybe you guys could take it on. <laughs> well, you know what? I'll think about it. But, yeah, it's very tempting. We don't really have any place to store it, though. Sad news, though. Yeah, for sure. Angela? Well, I don't know how many people have heard this news yet. I just saw it come across my news feed this morning. But Robert Krolwich, the co-host of Radiolab, is stepping down from the show. So he feels like uh, he wrote this really sweet letter and he basically says, you know, he's been doing the show for 15 years. He and uh, Jad Abumrad built this creation. It's one of the most interesting uh, radio shows, if you will, just the way they put it together, the different sounds and the mixing and how they bring in different voices and tell the stories. So he and Jad Abumrad... (laughs) He always gets mispronounced on the credits at the end. That always cracks me up. But anyways, they've built this program, and um, they've brought in a lot of talent and sort of brought that talent up. And he was sitting in a recent editorial meeting, and he just, 
you know, listened and looked around the room as all these great ideas were flowing. And he felt like I could step out the door and this process of Radiolab would continue and it would thrive. And so he's looking to move on. I guess they've got a couple more episodes to record. And then the future of the show, um, it is very popular. So we're not sure if they'll find another co-host to work with Jad or if they'll revamp it um, or what will happen. So stay Mm -hmm. tuned to that. I feel like we haven't heard him on the show as much lately. Maybe he's been stepped back a little bit already. Yeah, I mean, they've got so many creative people in there that, um, you know, you really could do many shows without him. I mean, he's the foundation of it along with Jad. Um, and they just have such a great rapport together. Um, they know each other so well, and they just kind of bounce off of each other. I did see Robert Krolwich a few years ago at the Holt Center, and Honestly, I was a little disappointed because mm-hmm. I thought, you know, as a radio person, he's really going to take us behind the scenes and show us how these cool stories are made. And it wasn't quite that. It left me as a radio person wanting a little more. But I think for the general audience, it was probably very interesting because they don't get to go behind the scenes of radio mm-hmm. like we do. So I just kind of wanted to nerd out a little more <laughs> with him. But um, anyway, so stay tuned and see what happens with Robert Krolwich and with Radiolab. And Elizabeth? So as a recent graduate, I do like to pay attention to stories that have to do with student loans. And um, <laughs> apparently, if someone is becomes disabled, has a major accident in which they can't work, they're able to get their student loans reduced or erased. But apparently, hundreds of thousands of people don't know that's a thing. Basically, NPR looked into a story in which someone had a traffic accident in which they became paralyzed, I believe, And she is no longer able to work. And she, like many others, um, are trying to get their student loans erased. And they're basically kind of dragging their feet with it, not really doing it very quickly. And so I haven't fully read the story, but that's definitely something on my list that I'm paying attention to. Like you said, I don't know that I wasn't aware that that program existed. So but it sounds like it's not necessarily as effective as one would hope. Right. Exactly. Well, it doesn't seem like they would want to advertise it, right? Like Good the point. loan companies aren't like, hey, if you get disabled, you don't have to pay your loans. Um, I mean, student loans, as you probably know, are like the one thing you can't ever write off on a bankruptcy. So it is something that is pretty hard to get out from under. So I, I can imagine that there's um, there's more to be done in that arena of, of helping people when they really need it. Yeah. And it's really great that NPR did a story like this because like I said, as a recent graduate, I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to student loans. So it's just a tricky area to navigate. So it's Mm -hmm. great that they're bringing awareness to this. Well, we're approaching the end of 2019. And that means critics are out with their top 10 lists of best movies, TV shows and books of the year. And one of my favorite things this time of year is the NPR Book Concierge. It's an online interactive site with 350 books reviewed by NPR staff over 2019. And um, NPR's Petra Mayer was on All Things Considered earlier this week to talk about it. So the way it works is it's a giant visual matrix of this year more than 350 books. uh, And they're all recommended by our staff and critics. And down one side of the page, if you're looking at it on your desktop and then on mobile, it's slightly different. But there's a list of filters, straight up things like nonfiction, realistic fiction, science fiction. And then there's kind of what we call the subjective tags, which are the fun ones like ladies first or the dark side or book club <laughs> ideas. Oh, yeah. So anyway, it's a fun way to um, just poke around and also find the next book you want to read. So I recommended it at NPR.org. 
Thanks for joining us for this week's Northwest Passage Podcasts. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm All Things Considered host Angela Kendler. Reporting fellow Elizabeth Gabriel. And I'm reporter Chris Lehman. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. Music for the Northwest Passage podcast is composed and performed by Don Latarski. Mm-hmm.